If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 34. And I have a feeling you will always remember this sermon. Um, not only not only because it is dark and somewhat hot in here, but also because this is one of those passages of scripture that you always wonder why it's in the Bible. Why would God leave this passage of scripture to us. We know that the scriptures are profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, and all the scriptures are necessary for us, and all the scriptures teach us about Jesus Christ. But this is one of those passages that we are left wondering, what in the world is this doing in our Bibles? And so we're going to look at Genesis 34 this morning, and let me just briefly ask the Lord for his blessing on his word again. Father, we again ask that you would bless both the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray that you would accomplish your purposes, Lord. We know that darkness is as light to you and that you fill the heavens and the earth and that you are behind us and before us and your hand is upon us and such knowledge is too great for us. And so our God, pour your spirit out on us and manifest your power in us and cause Christ to be formed in us as your word is read and preached. We pray, our God, that you would do this for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 34, beginning in verse 1. And as Moses is continuing to give us that account of the patriarchs, he now tells us, Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hittite, the Hittite prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get this girl for me, for my wife. Now Jacob heard that, that he had defiled his daughter Dina. But his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price or gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dina. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people, but if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. 
So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters only. On this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people, with every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city when it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor, his son Shechem, with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and all their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should, we treat our, should they treat our sister like a prostitute? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, this is one of those passages, as I've noted already, that you, you're not sure what to do with. It's one of the reasons why we don't do expositional drama teams at New Covenant. Because I think we would have a hard time finding people that would want to play Shechem's men. I think that would be the hardest position. I don't think we'd have a lot of volunteers. And yet, it's one of those passages as we consider it and we wonder what place does this hold in redemptive history? What, what place? Why would God the Holy Spirit give us this passage in this history of the patriarchs at this moment in this way? And what, what is there for us in 2016 in a passage like this? Well, the last thing that we saw when we considered Jacob is that God brought about a peaceful resolution with Jacob. He brought Jacob and Esau together in some sort of reconciliation. We saw that Jacob acted honorably, that Jacob gave himself over to trusting God. Jacob prayed down the peace that he experienced with Esau. And as they parted ways and we saw that uh, Esau wanted Jacob to go with him and Jacob said to Esau, no, I have to go back to the promised land. Jacob is obeying God. The, the, the last thing that we see about Jacob is that he is trusting the Lord. He is walking by faith. He is walking obediently and he is pressing back to the promised land. And as he's doing that, we see that he stops short of going all the way back to Bethel. That's one of those things that we mentioned last week that as Jacob is going back, he, in a sense, renders half-hearted obedience to God. He stops and he builds himself a house. He builds his animals, uh, shelters. He builds for himself a resting place, and then he begins to become comfortable there. And, and we see that Jacob never goes the full 24 hours further to Bethel where God had met with him and where God told him to return. That was the place of God's blessing. If Jacob was truly walking by faith, he would have given it all and he would have walked all the way back to the place of blessing where God met with him, where God pronounced his blessing over Jacob, where God changed Jacob's name, where God manifested his grace and power in Jacob's life. And yet Jacob stops 24 hours short of obedience. Now, that's going to have massive implications for Jacob. 
In fact, all of chapter 34 is coming on the heels of chapter 33 and Jacob stopping short. And everything that we read about in chapter 34 is really the consequences. It is the consequences of stopping short of obeying the Lord and walking by faith and going all the way in full obedience. Jacob, in a sense, thinks that he is keeping the letter of the law by doing what he's doing when he is not keeping the letter or the spirit of the law. And we see in the first place that Jacob and his family here, they are the church. This is the church in the old covenant. And, and these are the people of God. These are the people that the covenant Lord Yahweh set apart for himself, gave promises to, said, I'm going to bless the nations in you. And, and if you will walk before me, if you will trust in my redemption, if you will obey my voice, he, he said to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you walk before me and be blameless. And as Jacob has been learning that lesson of obedience, we see that he stops short. And as he stops short, Jacob now finds himself comfortable right next to Hamor. Notice the end of chapter 33, verse 19. We're told, from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought a hundred pieces of money, the piece of the land on which he had pitched his tent. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Abraham had been given all the promises that he was going to get the land, that God was going to give him an everlasting inheritance, that God would give him the land, that the nations would be blessed in him. But Abraham never owned one piece of land except for a burial place for himself and his wife and his son and his son's wife and his grandson. And we'll see one of his grandson's wives. But his grandson is not content. His grandson wants some possessions for himself. And so he buys some of the land that God had promised. And in essence, what Jacob's doing here, Jacob is moving close to the world. The church is moving close to the world. Now, we're going to see three things briefly this morning. The first, we're going to consider the church near the world. And then we're going to consider the church in the world. And then finally, we're going to consider the church in conflict with the world, near the world, in the world, in conflict with the world. Now notice, um, we're told that Dina, the daughter of Leah, when, uh, whom she had bore to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hittite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, laid with her, humiliated her, and his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Now, in order to get the most out of this chapter, we have to understand several things. One, there are these little clues in the way in which Moses sets up the players in this drama. There are these little clues. He says first, this is Dina, the daughter of Leah. Now you'll remember that Jacob loved Rachel and didn't love Leah. He in fact despised Leah. And what we're going to see in this chapter is that everything that unfolds as Jacob is moving his family nearer and nearer to the, the heathen nations around them that God called them out from is that he is not going to protect his family in the world. Everything that's going to happen, he is jeopardizing his family. He is jeopardizing members of his family because Jacob is comfortable. Jacob is so comfortable that we are told when the incident happens, Jacob doesn't do anything. He has found himself a place of security right next to the world. You know, there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of parallels in this account to that of Lot. Remember, Lot is moving ever closer to Sodom and Gomorrah in the narrative. 
He's constantly pitching his tent closer and closer until he is in Sodom. And here Jacob is moving as close as possible to his pagan neighbors. He is moving the church and he is moving his family as close as he can. And, and God is warning that there are dangers. Now, let me say this at the outset. We are not fundamentalists. We do not believe that we should separate as far from the world as is possible for us. We do not believe that. We do not teach that. But we do believe that there are great dangers whenever we get close to the world. There are always great dangers when we get comfortable with the world, when we move closely to the world. And we're going to see there's dangers for our families. Because at the end of the day, the covenant promises that God made to Jacob depended in part The fulfillment of those promises depended in part on Jacob trusting the Lord, walking by faith, and being separate from the nations. And so here we see that Jacob is failing, and Jacob is jeopardizing his family. And we also see, and I think it's evident as we read between the lines, that Jacob never really protects his daughter. Now, that may be, that may be because, um, it may be because he doesn't love her as much as he loved uh, the children of Rachel, because she was the daughter of Leah. There's, there's some intimations to that. But I think what Jacob is doing is Jacob is becoming careless. He's becoming careless in the world. And there is a grave warning for us. There is a grave warning for us in this chapter. I think what God the Holy Spirit would have us see is that there's always a great danger of professing believers becoming careless getting near to the world, becoming too comfortable with the world. Jacob lets his daughter go out with the daughters of the land. Now that phrase, notice that phrase, it says, Dina Dina went out to see the women of the land. Now, uh, one commentator makes the point that what she was probably actually doing was going out to see the boys of the land. But here it says that she went out to see the daughters of the land. And the intimation by that is the the kingdom of this world. We've seen those two kingdoms, those two cities from the promise in Genesis 3.15 that God would establish his church, that he would send Christ, that he would redeem a people, that he would separate his people from the world, and then down through Cain and Abel and their descendants. And at every point you see the two cities, the city of God and the city of men, the inhabitants of Zion and the inhabitants of the world. And here we see that Dina is running after the world. She is drawn to the world because her father has put her right near the world. He has put her out there and he's been careless. Now, I want to say two things this morning. Um, Even as I've already said, we do not try to live as physically far away from people as possible. That's not what the scripture teaches. Um, we also need to be on guard that we are not being careless with the way we let our children interact with the world. Um, That is an enormous biblical principle. And I think, as I was thinking about this this week in preparation, it is so foreign to everything that you hear on television. It is so foreign to everything that you talk about in conversations. It is even foreign to the church itself to hear this. I think for the last four decades... It has been foreign to the church to have serious calls that we are to protect our children as much as is possible to us from loving the world and the things in the world. And what Jacob has done is he has moved them right there, right, right beside 
the very place that he should have been protecting his children from. And he allows his daughter to go out. And, he, and you see the consequences that no sooner does she go out that we're told that Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the land, saw her and seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now, think of Shechem a lot like Saddam Hussein's son. I don't know if you ever read much about his son, but his son was notorious for taking whatever women he wanted and, and defiling them. And, and he abused the power that he had and the position he had as the prince of the king of Iraq. And that is a very helpful illustration for what we are looking at in Genesis 34. Here is the prince of this pagan land, and he sees Dina, and he wants Dina, and he takes Dina, and he defiles Dina. And, and that is one of the awful consequences of Jacob not protecting his daughter. Now, I want to say this this morning, too. It is impossible for you to protect your children from sin in one very real sense. You cannot change your children's hearts. It is an absolute impossibility for you to change the hearts of your children. It was an absolute impossibility for Jacob to reach into the heart of Leah and not make her want to go and see the women of the land. There is, you will never, no amount of godly parenting, no amount of discipline, no amount of love, no amount of nurture and sheltering will ever change the hearts of our children. God's grace, God's spirit, God's word, it is God's work. We plant, we water, we discipline, we nurture. God gives the increase. And yet, for all of that, you get the sense that Jacob is not nurturing, is not disciplining, is not seeking to protect, is not seeking to raise Dina in the fear of the Lord. In fact, it's very interesting, and you would miss this if you didn't read this carefully. The Lord is never mentioned in this chapter, not once. Not on the lips of Jacob, not in the interaction of Jacob's sons with this pagan king. Nowhere is the Lord mentioned in this chapter. And, and you're left wondering, what happened to Jacob? I mean, here is godly Jacob. Jacob is a godly man. Jacob has had spiritual experiences with the Lord that none of us have had or will ever have in this life. He has had such near encounters with God that they are set out in the scriptures as some of the greatest. Here is a believer in Jesus Christ. Here is a man who is redeemed by God, regenerate, and yet for a moment, and, and we don't know how long, he is living as if he's never had that encounter with the Lord. Now, I think that's important for us. Because I think one of the lessons that we can take away from in this chapter is that even if we have had spiritual experiences where the Lord has drawn near to us, where he's done a great work of grace in our lives, we don't live in the past on those experiences. And it's very possible and oftentimes a reality for us to move away and to go back and to trust in ourselves and to go back to loving the world. There is a great, great warning. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't matter. I know men and women who seem to spend the better part of their life following the Lord and at the end of their life said, I don't believe any of this anymore. I know a man, he was in my Sunday school class when I was 24 years old, who was in his 70s then, who is now in his late 80s, and a friend told me recently that he's completely denounced the faith and said, I never really believed any of that. So it doesn't matter how old or how young someone is, it doesn't matter what experiences we've had, Jacob had spiritual experiences, and yet Jacob loves the world. Jacob has a love for the world, and he is going to bear the consequences by taking his family near 
to the world. Now notice secondly that he moves into the world now. And as 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 Dina goes to the world and as this awful event has happened to her and as Shechem has defiled her, notice that there is a turning point. In verse 3, we're told that Shechem loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get this girl for my wife. Now, one thing we're going to see is that there is something noble about what Shechem and Hamor do at this point. There was nothing noble about what he did in defiling Dina. There is everything noble in what he's doing now in saying, I want her to be my wife. And there is everything noble with what his father, Hamor, says in trying to barter and broker for this marriage. In fact, the unbelieving world looks more righteous than the church at this point. That's a big principle in this chapter. The unbelieving world, as wicked as they they are and as wicked an act as the prince of this king had done, are now acting more righteous than the church. And you see the church now coming into the world and the world and the church now starting to want to intermingle. And one of the big principles that we have to keep in mind is that the Lord everywhere said that his people are not to marry the unbelieving world. Now, we've talked about that again, not a popular thing. Not, not something you hear much at all anymore. And yet something so vital to the preservation of the Christian religion. That what God forbids the intermarriage of believers and unbelievers is because God is insistent on having for himself a people set apart who will be faithful to him, who will preserve the gospel, who will bear witness to the gospel, who will seek to raise children who will know Jesus Christ, so that for generations to come, the covenant mercy of God is going on from generation to generation. And that is the principle. That's why everywhere in the Bible, God forbids believers marrying unbelievers. And here you have the unbelieving world, and they're saying, let's come together. Let my son have your daughter as wife. What can we give you? What, what can we do? And you see Jacob again compromising, don't you? Jacob has done nothing. He's done absolutely nothing. Notice that Moses tells us um, in verse 5, Jacob heard that Shechem defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Now, I don't know what Jacob should have done. I don't think anybody knows. What should Jacob have done? What would have been the perfect God-honoring, God-pleasing, wise, upright thing to do after this awful incident happened? I, I suppose Jacob should have gone and gotten his daughter, and he should have received the peace with which Hamor was now seeking that peaceful relationship, but he should have said, I cannot let my daughter marry your son because the living and true God who appeared to me, the covenant Lord who had mercy on me, the God who has made promises to my grandfather and my father and to me and to every subsequent generation after me, that God has said that we are to be separate. That's what he should have done. And let me say this this morning. You know why Jacob didn't do it? Not only was Jacob's heart backslidden, but it takes courage. It takes courage to do what Jacob didn't do. It takes courage to do it in the church. Um, sadly, I have heard parents say over the last 15 years, well, I, I can't tell my son not to do this. Yes, you can. You're the parent. You can say whatever you want to say. Yes, 
You've listened to the world if you think you can't tell your children what they're to do and what they're not to do. Yes, that is not mean-spirited. That is not brash. That is what God calls us to, and Jacob should have done that. Jacob should have gone and rescued his daughter. Jacob should have done the right thing and said, I cannot give my daughter to you. Jacob should have dealt mercifully with his daughter and compassionately with her, but he should have walked in truth. And he should have been a man for Jesus. You know, there's this great story because it is so rare and it's becoming increasingly more rare um, where John Wesley was preaching, um, I believe, right here on the coast. And some men came. There was a large crowd and some men came and they, um, they were coming evidently to attack Wesley. And as he preached and as the story goes, he started to tremble. He started to fear because it takes courage to do what is pleasing to God. And, and who knows what was going through Wesley's mind. And um, Susanna Wesley stood up as the story goes, and she said, play the man for Jesus, John. Play the man for Jesus. Jacob should have played the man for Jesus. But Jacob was now in the world, and now he was stuck in the world, and now he was going to act like the world, and he was going to reason with the world, and he was going to live even closer to the world. Now, I think the lessons are evident to us, um, no matter whether our children are young or grown. You know, I've told you the story, my friend Carl Rudolph, um, Anna and I met him when he and his wife were in their late 60s, and um, Carl's father had been a a professor at a a well-known reform seminary in the Northeast, and When Anna and I met him, we were asking stories about his upbringing and his father and his family's life. And Carl said to us one day, you know, I wasn't converted until I was in my 40s. And and we said, really? And, And he started telling us how the Lord drew him to himself and how he had rejected what his parents had taught. And and he went on to tell us that one of the great regrets he had was that now their children were grown. Many of them were not walking with the Lord because they had not raised them to know the Lord and trust the Lord. And um, Carl and his wife went on to show Anna and I binder after binder. I mean, they were huge binders, binder after binder after binder of devotionals that he began writing in his 50s for his children to do devotions with their children. Never seen anything like it in my life. Here was a man that realized we didn't raise our children to know the Lord. We, we love the world. We went after the world. We let our children go into the world. We let our children do what they want. But the Lord got a hold of them, and they immediately said, what can we do to shepherd our children's hearts? And what can we do to shepherd the grandchildren that God has given them? And so while there are warnings, there is always the call for us to wake up and to realize what we have to do. And notice, as, as the conflict now increases, because as uh, Shechem and his father, Hamor, begin to try to bargain for uh, the marriage of uh, his son and, and Dina. Notice the brothers come home. And as the brothers come home, and you can imagine the rage that they are feeling, notice that uh, we are told that 
as the brothers come home, that they deal deceitfully. Notice verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dina. Now, here's the world in conflict with the church. The church is now in conflict with the world. The church is compromised. The people of God have compromised. They have borne the consequences of it. The world has acted more righteously in regard to the church. And now the church is going to try to avenge itself. And this is one of the saddest marks in all of redemptive history. Here is, here's the church of the Lord Jesus. And you have within the pale of the church, two of what will become the 12 tribes, the two brothers, who will act in vengeance and malice, who will act in deceit, just as Shechem was driven with burning zeal to defile Dina. Now, two of the sons of Jacob, by the way, sons of Leah, the brothers of Dina, are now burning with desire for revenge, and it will not be satisfied until there is bloodshed. And notice as they deceive them and they say, you have to be circumcised, that's the only way this can happen. And, and while their motives were wrong, Hamor and Shechem submit themselves to that. And in submitting to that, they and all the men in the city allow themselves to be circumcised. And on the third day, the Bible says, when they were sore, Simeon and Levi went in with swords and they wiped out the city. Now, I sometimes think, most of us are probably socially conservative, I would imagine. I sometimes think that the way we respond to injustice against the church, against other believers, against people that we care about, is, is with a heart full of sinful revenge. I, I think that sometimes the morally strong response is really one and the same with the sinful vengeance that Simeon and Levi had. Um, they acted deceitfully, they acted wickedly, they acted ruthlessly. Um, really, their father should have dealt with the situation. They should have let their father handle the situation. They should have received the peace that these men were trying to make now. They should have dealt according to how these men were responding at this point. And here's the really awful thing. I want you to see this this morning. The really awful thing is that Simeon and Levi used the gospel to destroy a whole city of pagans that needed that gospel. Circumcision was that covenant sign that showed forth the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It showed forth what needed to happen. There had to be a bloody judgment for the heart of man to be cleansed. And they took, it would be like you inviting a bunch of unbelievers over that did something to you back in the day, and yet they're now trying to make peace, and you're like, well, you've got to be baptized, and you drown them. That's what they do. They use the covenant sign. They use the gospel sign. Instead of having a heart desiring the conversion of these men who may have at some point turned to the Lord in repentance and faith, instead of being a blessing to the nations and bringing the gospel to the nations, they went and they destroyed with the sign of the gospel. And it is so egregious that Jacob's dying words at the end of chapter 48 are curses on Simeon and Levi. What they do in their spirit is so egregious. They're, they're postured toward the unbelieving world. You know, you really see this in James and John. We all have this in our hearts. 
Remember in Luke's gospel, Jesus sends James and John out to preach the gospel in the regions of Samaria, which is outside. It would be very much like this situation. Israel, Samaria sends them into those regions of Samaria to preach the gospel. And they come back and they tell Jesus, they've rejected you. They've rejected the gospel. They've rejected us. Should we call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? And Jesus says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save lives. Now, I want to say this this morning because I have to. I have to say this. In our little corner of the internet, there are voices crying out for social activism right now because of all the injustice in our country. And, and while God may call any individual Christian to give their time and labors and efforts to entering into trying to bring about societal change. At the end of the day, the Bible reminds us repeatedly, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that the second that Christians forget that is the second we begin to act like Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi forgot, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Simeon and Levi forgot that why they were there and why God had had mercy on them was so that they might be a blessing to the nations, so that the nations might come to the Lord, that the nations might be brought in, that God's blessing may spread out from them to all around them. You have this, you have this unanswered question in this chapter. And that unanswered question is, what, what do we do about all the sin? The sin is never dealt with. What Simeon and Levi did, taking it into their own hands, just amassed more sin. They just, they just acted in more wickedness, in greater wickedness. They killed an entire city because of the sin of one prince. They killed a whole city because of the sin of one prince, and they heaped up for themselves greater condemnation because of their actions. And you're left wondering, how is this sin to be dealt with? What should Jacob have done? What should the sons of Jacob have done? What should... Shechem and Hamor have done? What should have been done? How will the sin be dealt with? And I think that we're left without an answer because we're to see why this chapter is in the Bible. And we're to see that contrary to destroying a whole city because the sin of one prince, our God sends Jesus Christ, his eternal son, and he takes all the sin of his people on himself. And by the offering up of one man, even the prince, Jesus Christ, the sins of the world are dealt with. The sins of God's people are dealt with. He doesn't come to destroy. He comes to redeem. He will destroy on Judgment Day, but he comes, he comes to redeem. And he takes all the sin on himself and he lays down his life for his people. What, what a different response, isn't it? Now, I've been thinking this week, as we hear these cries for justice and for action and for change, I was thinking, who is crying out for vengeance on the worst injustice the world has ever known? The worst injustice the world has ever known is that men would crucify the Lord of glory. That is the worst injustice the world has ever known. And I think that we're left with that long pause until Judgment Day. Because what Jesus did was he took all the injustice on himself, even as it was being dealt out to him. And he was treated as 
he was treated as the sexually unclean Shechem. He was treated as the murderous Simeon and Levi. By the way, the priesthood comes out of Levi. God's priesthood comes from Levi because Jesus is treated as Levi. Jesus is treated as the worst racist, as as the worst abusive law enforcement person. Jesus takes it all on himself. Jesus takes the sin of his people on himself and he is put to death and he takes your sin on himself and my sin on himself. Because at the end of the day, what Simeon and Levi should have acknowledged was their need for redemption and they wouldn't have acted that way. And the second we forget that Jesus was wounded for my transgressions and God was bruised for my iniquities is the second I act like Jacob, like Simeon and Levi, like Shechem, like Hamor, who really just wants more possessions for himself. The second I forget what my sin cost the sinless son of God is the second that I act exactly like them and the church goes to the world and the world and the church come into conflict and everything goes into disarray. Now, let me say this as we close. I think that we have unique challenges as parents in our day. I think we have unique challenges as Christians. I think we have unique challenges as citizens. I think we have unique challenges across the board in every sphere in which we live. But there is one thing, one thing that we rest in and are confident in, and that is that God sent his son to take all of the injustice and all of the sin of his people on himself, and including and especially my sin. And that means the thing I should be doing more than anything else, more than surfing the web, more than having conversations with people, is fixing my eyes on Jesus Christ crucified. Because when my eyes are fixed on Jesus crucified, even when I am dealt with improperly, even when those I love, even my children are dealt with improperly by the world, even when I have compromised and am now bearing the consequences of the world, or even when I have been in the world as one of the world, living as the world, the answer is the same. Jesus Christ crucified is the power of God unto salvation. It is how God makes every wrong right. It is how God vindicates his glory. It is how God executes his justice. It is how God subdues a people to himself. It is how we become a people that can bless when we are persecuted. It is the only way we will ever respond seeking to bless and to do good and to build up and to speak kindly when we are reviled. When we look at the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. Now, I'm going to say this as we close. It sounds so simple, it is so simple, and yet it's the hardest thing in the world to do because you do not have in your flesh the ability to do it, and I do not have in my flesh the ability to do it. But God has promised by the ministry of his word, by the power of his spirit, to work in the hearts of his people, to enable us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to keep all of our prayers directed to him. I want to say this as the last point. Besides any reference to the Lord in this chapter, There is a glaring absence of prayer. Why didn't Jacob ever go to the Lord and say, Lord, what would you have me do? At no point did the church call on the Lord and say, what would you have us do? But when we realize that God deals with all the sin and all the injustice and all the hurt, and he does it by wounding and bruising his own son for his people to reconcile us to himself and to bring peace to the world, 
We learn to be a people when we are beset by consequences and conflict to say, Lord, what would you have us do? And we search his word and we seek to walk by faith. Now, that is a word that is pertinent for every second of our lives. Every event that will happen, everything the news will sensationalize, every activity that will ever happen to this church or to your family, that is a word that will have binding and lasting significance. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge how much our hearts are often loving this world, and when we have loved the world and we have borne the consequences of it, we acknowledge, our God, that we have often tried to take matters into our own hands. We have had hearts that have been full of sinful anger and vengeance and a lack of love and a lack of trust and a lack of prayerlessness, a lack of prayer. And so, our God, we pray that you would revive us by this word. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray that you would show us that by one offering up of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have forever covered the sins of your people. You have satisfied your wrath. You have vindicated your justice. Our God, we pray that you would hide us in Jesus Christ and that you would make us a people that are actively looking to him in faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.